Lord God, I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you so much that you're a God that is constantly walking with us. When we're down in the valley, you're by our side. When we're up on the mountaintops, you are right there. And Lord, this morning my prayer would be that I could step to the side, that, that my voice would really be nothing more than speaking your truth. And, and Lord, I pray your spirit would move among us. And God, that in each of our hearts, you can communicate to each of us in ways that that I know I can't. And so, Lord, I pray that you would have your will done this morning in each of our hearts. And God, through all of my shortcomings and and my failures, that that you would just continue to do something good in each of us this morning. Show us, Lord, today what it is that you would want us to become. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You see, becoming is a major theme in the Christian life. We are constantly becoming Something, And if you look to Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you'll see this common thread that runs throughout where people are becoming something. In the New Testament, people are called for the first time to become followers of this man named Jesus Christ. And these followers, they're called to become disciples. That means to sit at the feet of, to learn from. These disciples, they are called to become disciples. Servants, just as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. These servants, they are called to become people of humility, where they look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. People are called to be godly parents. People are called to be husbands and wives that honor and love one another. People are constantly called to become. Constantly called to become. And in one instance in Scripture... We say Jesus, where he is in this small home in this town called Capernaum, and he's speaking to his disciples, and he looks at them, and he says exactly what it is that they're supposed to become. And his words shock them and baffle them completely. And even today, we struggle to fully understand what Jesus meant by what he said. And so a good place to start with this is to go right to the Gospels, specifically Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call these three Gospels the Synoptic Gospels. We call them that because they look very similar in the way that they flow. The narrative tells many of the same stories. They carry many of the same themes. And then the Gospel of John, it stands somewhat independent. It, it looks very different if you read through it. The narrative looks different. It has different themes. And the reason for this is that as God inspired, as the Holy Spirit inspired the authors of the Gospels, he had in mind specific purposes that he wanted to communicate. Certain things that he wanted to be highlighted to the audience that these Gospels were written to. And so for us to look at the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the narrative that we're going to look at today, by looking at all three of them together, because each one paints a little bit more of a picture, so all three of them create this portrait that's complete that we can look at. And it starts in Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9. It's not going to be up on the screen. I'm actually not going to read it. I'm going to walk us through this narrative because we're pulling and drawing from different texts throughout the Gospels. But it picks up in Matthew chapter 17. And by looking back just a little bit, we can see in the context that Jesus has been doing this intensive ministry of, of preaching and discipling and healing. And at this point, he's just kind of worn out. So he wants to get away from the crowds. He wants to take his disciples and they just want to get away and rest. 
And so it tells us that they go to this, to this area called Galilee. It's much like we would say southeast Kansas or, or Bourbon County. It's this, this region. And while they're there, Jesus is really just teaching his disciples. He's discipling them. And in the process of teaching, he, he ends up saying, I am going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. And then three days later, I'm going to resurrect back to life. And the disciples hear this and they are just, what? You've got to be kidding me, Jesus. This, is, this, this can't be true. And I think that their minds start going to things such as, you know, he tells parables all the time. So this is probably a parable of some sort. This is probably an allegory of, of some kind of way of teaching. Like we, He just can't literally mean that, right? Because for Jesus to die, for their leader to die, that just doesn't make sense to them. That's just not the best thing that should happen. And, and I, I want to point this out. I think we do the same thing. I think we hear words that come from the mouth of Christ, words from Scripture, and we really just say, eh, I don't really think that aligns with my way of thinking, so surely that's not what Jesus meant. Surely he didn't really mean that. And the best example is when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. I mean, he didn't, he didn't really mean that, right? Like my coworker, the one that lies behind my back, the one that really spends like all of their time making me look bad to all the other employees, especially to the boss, the one that gossips about me, the one that just gives me that, that horrible look every time I show up to work, surely I'm not supposed to love that person, and so we don't. Or how about our enemies overseas? These people who came to our country did acts of terror, killed our citizens, surely Surely we're not supposed to love those people. Those people deserve to die. They're our enemies, right? We're not supposed to love our enemies. I know Jesus said that, but surely we're not supposed to love our enemies and pray for them? No, no. And and so we don't do it. Or how about this situation with Phil Robertson? Where the gay community has risen up and and come against him and and because of their, their outlash against some of his words in an interview, he's been by A&E taken off of the show Duck Dynasty. And as a backlash, Christians have responded in anger towards the gay community, and we've begun to attack them because they're our enemy, right? They attacked us. We attacked them. Surely Jesus didn't tell us to love them, and so we don't. And we take the words of Jesus that come right from his mouth, and we say, surely he did not mean that. He's not serious. And just like the disciples who hear Jesus say, I'm going to die, they go, no, 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 surely not. And we look just like them where we take his words and we twist them to kind of mean what we want it to mean. The text continues and it says, from Galilee, they travel along a road to a town called Capernaum. And along the road, they start to have a conversation. They, they start up this discussion. That's what we do when we travel. We, we have long talks. That's what I do. I love passionate conversations with people. And they have a very passionate conversation. In fact, it's an argument. The disciples are arguing about which of them is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And this is what we need to see. Just previous to this, they were sitting down with Jesus, and Jesus was saying, I'm going to die. And remember, he's God. So what he's really saying is, I am going to allow myself 
to be taken. I'm going to allow myself to be beaten. I'm going to allow myself to be killed because of my love for the world. I'm going to allow that. I'm going to humble myself to that state so that I can die for the world. And the very next moment, you see the disciples talking about, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. I am the greatest. And they go from God being a servant to themselves being elevated. Man, don't we do this too? The very fact we're in this building is because we say, you know what, we have a Savior who died for us. We're Christians. We're under His grace. That's why we're here. And we sing these songs as worship to Him, and it's all about Jesus. But at the same time, it's all about us. Because we're striving to elevate ourselves. And we do so by judging others. By placing ourselves next to another person so that we can say, I'm better than they are. We do it during worship. Someone worships differently than me. They raise their hands. They stand. They look kind of charismatic. They don't really know what worship is, so I'm going to judge them. Where the opposite takes place. You sit down. You're not very charismatic. You don't raise your hands. I'm more of a Christian than you. And we look at people who, who say certain words, who watch certain movies, who drink alcohol, and we judge them and we say, you're not as good of a Christian as I am. And then on the other side, we look at people who don't drink alcohol, people who don't use certain words, who don't watch certain movies, and we say, you don't understand grace. You're not a real Christian. And we judge and we judge and we elevate ourselves to a place where we say, I am greatest in the kingdom of God. And we forget that this is all about a Savior who died on a cross, who humbles himself to the place of death for us. And yet, we are constantly elevating ourselves. Selves. The disciples did it. I think we look a lot like them sometimes. The text tells us that they continue along the road and they eventually arrive in Capernaum at this home and they enter the home. And I think the scenario played out like this. The disciples would have been getting everything arranged. They probably would have been thanking their hosts for allowing them to stay there. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus turns to them. And he says, hey guys, what exactly were you talking about on the road? Which I think caused silence among the disciples. Probably one of those, you know, like looking around at each other. It's like when mom accuses all of her children of something. There's like, I don't really know. You know, no one responds. And I find it interesting that Jesus, who is God, would ask a question that he knows the answer to. Why would he do that? That's always baffled me. He knows the answer, so why not just go along with it? Because I think Jesus does this. He wants to see how people will respond when they sin. He wants to see what we do when we fall. And I think he asks questions of us also. Just like he asks questions of the disciples, I believe he turns to us and he says, what were you looking at on the internet when no one was home? What was that? Or what were you saying to that woman on Facebook that's not your wife? Or to that man that's not your husband? Or what did you get out of the cupboard the other day when you were feeling stressed and didn't know where else to turn? Or what did you put on your time card from last Friday? He wants to see how we respond when we fall. Timothy Keller, he's a pastor in in New York City. He's an author and a speaker. And he's known as saying this, all Christians sin. Yet the definitive mark of a true Christ follower is that when they sin, they run to Christ and not away from Christ. So when you sin, 
What do you do? When you fall, what do you do? Do you run to Christ and say, Lord, I need your mercy. I need your grace. Forgive me. Or do you begin to rationalize? Do you begin to justify? You know what? I I have the right to do that. You know what? People mistreated me, so I'm just acting back towards them. How do you respond when you sin? So Jesus asked this question of his disciples. He says, what were you talking about on the road? And I think silence is what happened. And then finally, one of them speaks up. We don't know which one it was, but, but they say, well, well Jesus, we were, we were talking about, and I'm just imagining like this, how do you tell this to Jesus? We were talking about which one of us was the greatest in the kingdom of God. But a lot of commentators actually believe that this is kind of how it played out. Because if you look at the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see that in some accounts, they asked Jesus which of them was the greatest. And then in other accounts, you see Jesus approaching them and being like, what, is it, what was it that you were talking about? And then they confess it. So we, uh, commentators believe it actually looked like this, that Jesus asked the question, though knowing the answer. And then the disciples go, ah, we know who can finish this argument. We know who knows the real answer to this. Why are we even arguing amongst ourselves? Jesus is God. He knows. Let's ask him. So it was more like this. Jesus, which of us is the greatest? And they're expecting him to pull out this list of all the good things they had done. And they begin to rank them accordingly. So they're expecting, hey, you do great exercising demons. Keep it up. And you, you teach so well. Your conclusions, man, they're strong. And every time I teach, you, you make eye contact the whole time. Keep it up, guys. Keep it up. That's what they're expecting. But that doesn't happen at all. You see, Jesus, he, he is a master in the unexpected. He's a master in taking a situation and flipping it on its head and shocking everyone, not for shock value, but because truth is shocking. So the text tells us that he takes a seat. And I imagine he's kind of quiet for a little bit. I think everybody in the room started to realize, man, he's not going to answer our questions probably got tense. And then Jesus did something that that no one expected, something that no one understood. In the back of the room, he points to a small child and he motions for the child to come to him. The child stands next to him and this kid would have been somewhere between the ages of two, old enough to stand because the text tells us he was standing, and younger than 13 because at 13 in Jewish customs, you were an adult. So somewhere between those ages, and he stands next to Jesus. And I, I just picture Jesus looking at the child, looking at his disciples, the disciples looking at the child, looking at Jesus, looking at each other, thinking, what in the world is he going to do with this? And then Jesus says, you want to know the answer to your question about which of you is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Well, let me tell you this. Unless you humble yourself and become like a little child, you won't even enter the kingdom of God. And when they heard this, they were shocked and they were baffled. And I would even say that they were angry when they heard this. So we've got to ask the question, what exactly did Jesus mean when he said, you must become like little children? So we're going to look at two things. The first is simply, what did he mean? By what he said. And the second is what do we do about this? 
And so in order to understand what Jesus really meant by what he said, what we have to do first is this. We have to remove ourselves from Fort Scott, Kansas, from the United States, from 2013. And we have to place ourselves in the context of a Jewish nation, of individuals who were in that home to hear the words of Jesus spoken, to truly understand exactly what they would have felt when they heard these words. And I think the best way to do that is for you to put yourself at work tomorrow. You go in and your manager, your boss, whoever your supervisor is, decides to have this big meeting for the whole company. All the employees come together. And he looks at you and he says this, things are going to be different around here. We're going to have a new protocol. We're going to begin to act differently. And and this is what you need to know. That if you don't become the new type of employee that we're wanting, man, then you're done here. You're fired. You just won't be working here. And so at this point, man, you're paying attention. I mean, you're listening. I, I want to keep working here. I want my job. So I'm a, I, whatever you say. And then he motions to the back of the room. And his six-year-old son, Skip, runs through the door. He's got mustard all over his shirt from the corn dog he just ate. And you know, he's chewing on a Hot Wheel car. And he, he jumps up into his dad's arms. And his dad says, yes, my son right here, Skip, you need to be more like him. And Skip wipes the snot from his nose and grins at all of you. What? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You want us to be more like your son, Skip, this, this little snot-nosed kid. That, that's ridiculous. I bet some of you would be so mad you might quit. I'm not going to listen to somebody who's telling me to do that. This is absurd. Man, that's somewhat of how they, the disciples would have responded to this. I mean, Jesus said it, so they're down with Jesus, but his words to become like a child? You've got to be kidding me. I think they were confused frustrated, offended, angry, that he would tell them that they're supposed to become like children. No, man. So one of the first things we have to understand is the difference that you would have had in the first century from today in the way that they viewed children. I think today we view children in a really positive light. I mean, we should. I mean, I love kids. I'm a youth pastor. I have a little nine-month-old son. I love him most of the time. And we, we just, we like kids. They have all these good qualities. And in fact, this is what we do when we interpret this passage a lot of the time. In fact, I've preached this passage this way. We, we take two relationships, children and the relationship with their father, and then we look at our relationship with God. And then we begin to, begin to compare them. And we say this is precisely what Jesus meant when he said become like a little child. And so we, we see a child who whenever they're frightened or scared, they run to their dad. And we say when we're frightened, we're scared, we run to God. A child wants to spend all their time around their dad. So we need to want to spend time around God. Read our Bible, pray, and you do those things. A child, they want to become just like their father. They want to walk like him, dress like him, talk like him. And we, we have to desire to become just like God. And all of that is good. And all of that fits to a great extent. But then you've got to do this counterbalance of all the things that kids are not what we should become, right? I mean, spend five minutes around a kid and you're like, I don't think I should become that. That's not good. He just bit his brother. Like, that's not a good thing. And so we always get this awkward balance between, okay, Jesus wants me to become like a child. So what do I do and what do I definitely avoid? And, And we get confused by all of this. We get confused about how the disciples would have responded to this and how we're supposed to respond to this. But I think one of the biggest things we have to understand how children reviewed in the first century 
in Jewish society compared to how children are viewed today. I mean, we have elevated children today to a place that really no generation before us has done. We buy our children whatever it is they want because they need it. I mean, we've got kindergartners with iPads tweeting and hashtagging stuff. I mean, it's incredible. If they want an iPhone, they're going to get one because their friends have it. We tend to just provide everything and anything for our kids because we just want to make them happy because we've elevated them. They're the most important thing in our lives. And I mean, if you're a parent, you realize your life revolves around your children. I slept for two hours last night because my son decided to scream a lot. It was great. Our lives revolve around our kids. But I think one of the best examples that we can see how society views children today is that when a child accuses an adult of some kind of crime, it is the closest thing in our judicial system to guilty until proven innocent. Because we view children with such high esteem. I mean, they are the epitome of just grace and truth. But man, in the first century... In the first century, it was the opposite of that. So when Jesus said to these grown men, you need to become like little children, this is where their mind went. Kids, they're less than second-class citizens. They don't even have their own identity. They are whom they belong to. Their parents, or if they're a slave, their master, that's the only identity they have. They can't own anything. They can't work. They can't have their own possessions. They can't even get food for themselves. It has to be given to them. They are completely dependent upon whomever they belong to. Man, if a child in the first century would have accused an adult of something, the reply would have been, that is the word of a kid. No, no one would have listened. And so for Jesus to say, you need to become like little children, these men would have responded in such a way as, no, I'm the master of my life at this point. Man, I left those childish ways behind. I'm no longer going to be dependent on anybody. I'm going to provide for myself. I'm going to make my own choices. I've been waiting my whole life to get to that point. I'm not going back to the place of a child. They would have been frustrated. So we still ask this question, what exactly did Jesus mean when he said become like little children. I think what he meant, plain and simply, was if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you must be humble. You must be the epitome of humility. You must be a person of humility. And I can't help but ask the question, why? Why humility? Why not, you know, like wisdom? Why why wouldn't Jesus say that? You know, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you have to be someone who's wise. That makes sense. Or how about this? You, You have to be a person of righteousness. That makes sense. Why humility? Why would Jesus set up this status of humility as so important that you cannot be a part of the kingdom of God unless you possess humility. And I believe it's this, because humility says, I am a sinner in need of a savior. A lack of humility says, I'm good enough. I don't need a savior. But you see, none of us would stand here and say, I don't, I don't need Jesus. I don't need his grace. I don't need the cross. None of us would say that. But we may live a life that looks like that. It's simply what we call self-righteousness. It's what we call kind of religion. It has a really bad connotation today. 
And self-righteousness, man, it's something that it's so easy to say, yeah, I know self-righteousness, you know, people. They're they're sitting around me right now. And all these people in my life who are self-righteous, it's really easy to point the finger. But we never receive it. We hardly ever receive the conviction of, you know what, I'm self-righteous. And here's a little test that you can do. If you're reading, you know, spiritual books, or if you're reading the Bible, or listening to sermons, or listening to lessons, and you're hearing all of these really impactful truths, and your mind constantly goes to this, man, I know people who need to hear this. My wife needs to hear this, man. My husband needs to hear this. My neighbors need to hear this. Man, I wish my kids were here to hear this. And to an extent, that's okay. But when you are constantly deflecting truth off of yourself to others who need it more than you, instead of letting that truth sink into your heart, convict you, and bring you to a place of repentance before God, chances are you may be self-righteous. You see, self-righteousness says, what are the things that I have to do? And if I do them, then I'm good. What are the things that I have to avoid? And then if I avoid them, I am good. And self-righteousness does not humble itself to a place where it says, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I am only righteous because of Him. Only because of Him. So what do we do with this? What do we really, really do with this? And I would say the first thing would be that we have to realize how important it is. Because Jesus makes this statement, you cannot be a part of the kingdom of God unless you humble yourself like a child. He's saying unless you possess humility, essentially, you will not have eternity with me unless you are a person of humility. I mean, that should get our attention right off the bat. We have to understand how important that that is. We have to understand This, that humility is the foundation on which our relationship with Jesus is built. It's it's illustrated in, in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus is with this crowd of people. And the crowd is a mixture of religious people who for their entire lives have just studied the Torah. They were great Jews. Some of them were Pharisees, Sadducees. And then also in the crowd there were people who you would label as sinners, outcasts of society, adulterers, all these people. And Jesus begins by telling this story. There were two men. One of them was a Pharisee. And I want you to think of just a person raised in the church They've got the Bible memorized, a Pharisee. He says the other was a tax collector. A tax collector was one of the most rejected people among the Jews because they had essentially begun to work with Rome, taxing their own people. And so the Jewish people hated them. So just think about the person whom you don't want to be around. That's the tax collector. And Jesus says that they go into the temple and they both go to pray. The Pharisee goes to a place where he can be seen. And he stands among all the people and he places his arms out and he looks up to heaven and he says, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like other men, these sinners, these adulterers, these thieves. I thank you that I am not like them. But I tithe to you twice a week. I study the scriptures daily. And Lord, I thank you for who I am. And then the tax collector. He goes to a place far off where no one can see him. He can't even look up to heaven. His face is downcast and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus turns to the crowd and says, only one of these men were justified before God that day. 
For whoever exalts him himself, they will be humbled. Yet whoever humbles himself, the Lord will exalt him. Man, the takeaway more than anything else for me, because this is a hard sermon for me to preach, because I am the epitome of self. I am the epitome of elevating myself to a place. And I will admit this to you, it's a struggle for me to stand on stage in front of a lot of people because I'm seeking your approval, which is elevating myself. So where this text takes me and where it should take you is to a place where we fall on our knees and say, Lord, I am a sinner fully in need of grace, fully in need of you. And I will say this, as Christians, we do have righteousness. But our righteousness is not our own. When we enter the waters of baptism and we die to ourselves, resurrect in new life, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. These good works are nothing that we do. They have been done for us. We cannot boast in anything we have done. And so the response to this would be humility and prayer, humility and confession. Humility and Lord, I am a sinner. I judge others. I put myself above other people. I'm trying to elevate myself. I'm not looking to you as I often should. I'm looking to myself. Lord, please forgive me. The response to this is humility and forgiveness because we have to remember Jesus says, if you do not possess humility and you are excluded from the kingdom of God, and that's a heavy word coming from Scripture. And so as the band comes forward, I'd really like to encourage you guys to in some way be able to respond. You can respond in a number of ways. You can come forward here tonight. I mean, there's nothing special. I've said this before about coming to the front of a stage. There's nothing, nothing holy about this room. There's nothing holy about even being on your knees, the posture of that. But it's about the posture of your heart. Can you humble your heart before the Lord to where you're saying, I am in need of a Savior fully. I'm not going to put myself above other people. I'm not going to look to elevate my own cause, but I'm going to make it all about Christ. If you feel the need to respond for the first time or to repent, I'd encourage you to do so.